What if museums were not confined to buildings, but could be part of the natural world? What if sculptures could not only celebrate our oceans, but also provide habitats for marine life? Jason DeCares Taylor is a sculptor, environmentalist, and underwater photographer. His works are constructed using materials to instigate natural growth and the subsequent changes intended to explore the aesthetics of decay, rebirth, and metamorphosis. Now, Taylor's pioneering public art projects are not only examples of successful marine conservation, but also works of art that seek to encourage environmental awareness and lead us to appreciate the breathtaking natural beauty of the underwater world. Jason DeCarries Taylor, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for inviting me along. And thank you also for joining us during World Oceans Month. We felt it was very apt to bring you on because your work is so, on one hand, it's powerful and beautiful, but not just for the boldness and innovation of creating underwater museums and sculpture parks, but by collaborating with marine life, you create these living sculptures that, for me personally, makes me reflect on our relationship with the sea. And I think it also inspires people to conserve and protect it. I hope it achieves that objective. They're meant to work on many different levels. First and foremost, they're meant to introduce more people to our marine environment. Two thirds of our planet is blue and underwater. And yet, so little is understood about it. So for me, it's been quite interesting to use art as a way to explore this incredible space, whilst at the same time working with nature, working with marine life to actually create the patinas, the surfaces, the textures and the forms underwater is a really exciting place to work. Indeed, because when you see your creative process, which is collaborating also with local communities, you need to have permissions for these vast underwater museums or sculpture parks. You're creating these wonderful forms that are designed to evolve over. But then it's like the sea is the colorist. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they get claimed and almost owned by the sea and the textures that form, the patterns, all things that could never be reproduced by human hands. Yes, it's entirely unpredictable in many cases, and it's nothing like how I've envisaged it. And it's something there's an octopus that's made it his home, built a house around it, or there's a school of fish that have nestled within the formations. So yes, it's entirely unpredictable, and it's really subject to the environmental conditions. Often also when you go, depending on the visibility of the sea, the opacity of it, the nutrients in the water, again, it that really influences your relationship to the works. It's a very different experience visiting it when the visibility is reduced rather than on a day when it's crystal clear. And just explain the materials and how you make sure it's actually something that is in partnership with the sea. From the beginning, it's always been one of my major concerns that I don't always like human intervention in natural landscapes. And it was something that I was really conscious of when I first started out. So first and foremost, made attention to the fact that it needed to be made from materials that didn't pollute in any way, that were sustainable, that would last for a very long time. It takes reefs hundreds of years to fully get established. So the materials had to live up to that. They also had to not be displaced by all the strong forces and energy that is prevalent underwater and they also had to foster marine life and I also found out that they were very good at actually controlling how tourists interact with our marine areas so many of the projects are actually to draw visitors away from natural areas and to bring them to an area where there's a sandy substrate where their impact is lessened. Indeed and it also helps by putting these man-made structures it helps us appreciate more I mean the wonders of the ocean and these coral reefs which are vanishing they're like underground cities too and so it helps 
me at least, appreciate what great artistry there is in the ocean seas. Oh, it's been said many times, but the greatest museum ever is the ocean itself. And it's a wonder on all of our doorsteps. And I think a lot of people have misconceptions that it's only beautiful in tropical warm areas where, in fact, I've been to many different seas and oceans around the world. And they're all unique and they all have incredible diversity and abundance of life. So, yeah, no, it's really important we learn and, and care more for our blue spaces. And you addressed a little bit the unpredictability of it. You can only imagine what the finished evolving living sculptures will be like over time. But just looking back on some of your work, like your first underwater sculpture park or some other works like the Musician, Ocean Atlas, The Rising Tide, just tell us a little bit about unpredictable ways that the ocean claimed your work as its own. Yeah, there's been many different surprises along the way. I first started off in the West Indies on an island called Grenada, um, which was a tropical reef system. And I expected the works to be sort of colonized. And I knew, obviously, hard corals took a very long time to get established to build their calcium skeletons. But actually, they were colonized within days. We saw white little calcareous worms, pink coralline algae, green algae literally appeared sort of overnight. And then they had these incredible sponges. You know, you see a lot of sponges on the reefs and you don't really take a lot of notice. But actually, some of the formations and the patterns, and they sort of blanketed the sculptures with a network of capillaries and veins and and these incredible sort of scarlet reds and pinks. And it was something that I had no idea would colonize in such a way. And sponges are really interesting because they actually filter water. So they almost like breathe the water in and then exhale it out once they've taken the nutrients. And for me, that was when the work sort of really became living and part of the ecosystem. And I thought it was a kind of a really nice metaphor that we are nature, we are part of the system and we're all connected. And I think we lose sight of that a lot. I spend a lot of my childhood abroad because my parents were English language teachers and and so we lived all over the place <laughs> in Spain and Portugal and Malaysia. And I got to visit a lot of underwater reefs. It's a vast planning process and undertaking. Tell us about your different collaborators. Yes, it's extremely complex to get projects fully established and nothing happens overnight. The average timescale for a large project is around five years. And within that period, there's obviously lots of consultation with the governments, gaining the right permissions environmental surveys and analysis, but also a lot of community engagement, working with local members of the public to make sure that the work feels connected, feels relatable. Also working with local artists to help produce the works. And then, of course, understanding the actual marine environment itself, which is very different and has very different conditions that affect the engineering of the work, how they'll be anchored, how they'll be transported, how well protected they are, and how they'll begin to aggregate marine life. So, yeah, it is a very long process. And at first, I thought it was quite daunting. And then I looked at some of Christo's projects that took him 50 or 30 years to get established. And I realized I think I was doing okay. Yeah. And so in all this time, I mean, you've been diving a long time, you've seen changes to life down there. Can you reflect on that over the years? Yes, it's interesting because I, I spent some time in Malaysia when I was young and I actually just went back there this year for the first time after almost over 30 years. 
And it's sort of very sad in many places that I go to, you know, I hear the same things that you should have seen it <laughs> so many years ago when it was full of life and pristine. And there's been so much overconsumption and overfishing and so much pollution that many places have been dramatically changed to the detriment. But then I've been back to some other areas where I first started working, certainly in Mexico and in Grenada. And actually a lot of the corals have rebounded after hurricanes and after bleaching events. So it's very mixed. but. Overall, we are inflicting terrible damage. Indeed, but if left to repair itself, nature is a great healer of itself and of us. And so thinking about this balance, now we're predicted to reach that tipping point very soon of the 1.5 degree of change since industrial times. I don't like to think about the ocean in these utilitarian terms, but it's a great carbon sink. It cools this planet. I mean, we'd be well over 1.5 degrees if it were not for its cooling effects. So what are your reflections on that and how have some of your sculptures been highlighting these different aspects of climate change? I mean, for the past 15 years, I think most of the works have been focused on talking about climate change and talking about our relationship to the natural world. Obviously, as you mentioned, our oceans and seas are at the forefront. <laughs> the sea produces most of the oxygen we breathe. It regulates our climate throughout the world. It's so vital that we have a much better understanding and relationship with it. So whether it was the four horsemen of the apocalypse on the Thames, which was all about climate change, or if it was crossing the Rubicon, which was a big installation in the Atlantic Ocean about reaching this point of no return, I have really sort of tried to keep that first and foremost, because I wouldn't say it's not the only issue that matters, but it certainly is the foundations of our lives. And everything else would be irrelevant unless we can solve this challenge. Yes, those are all important. And it speaks also to the timeless quality of your work, that passage of time. And you have sculptures above land, but to see them embedded, it makes us think about the fragility of the ocean, but also our own fragility, all those who have passed before us and those lives that have been lost to time in a work of art. I appreciate not just when it's new and innovative, what I like in visual art and in sculpture, there's obviously this immediacy, but it often lacks that passage of time, right? Like you mm -hmm. have the written or like film or things that change as the viewer watches, it's kind of so immediate. So I think that you both have that immediacy in your work, but also it's living. So it's moving. It has that passage of time. No, certainly. I think there's definitely a sort of almost an archaeological quality about it that makes us reflect about who we are, where we are, what we're doing, where we're going. I think it raises many, many questions. And for me, I think that's it's really important. Certainly, we ask these questions at the moment, but we also draw people into an environment that they necessarily wouldn't have witnessed or wouldn't have connected to without that bridge of art to take them there. Hi, Jason. It's Tara. I was wondering through your journey as an artist, if the ocean helped direct your styles and messages in art, or if it was more like an inverse effect of how your artwork can actually help direct the needs of the ocean with stuff such as the artificial reefs. It's always difficult to generalize about my work because obviously they're very different in each location. So sometimes I witness how something, some particular species has colonized the rocks in that area or produced these certain types of forms that the light looks 
certain way. When I was in, in the Atlantic, it has a very different color and quality to it than some other places I've worked, which elicits a very different response from the viewer. And so I think that changed a lot in the way I produced the forms. But then at other times, there is people that I definitely wanted to represent from the community there that also dictated how the installations were. And then there was also messages that I really wanted to bring forth. In regards to sort of climate change, I really think we've missed an opportunity where we've had so much science and so many facts and figures and warnings and conventions but we've forgotten the part that has motivated us for millennia that is our emotions and i think you know that's where art and that's where often religion comes to the fore actually i noticed how so many of your pieces represent responsibility the bankers i mean they remind us how so often we're focused on like the near future rather than long-term goals you have ocean atlas which whenever i looked at it, it honestly felt like a younger generation knowing they have to carry the damage previously done and work to fix it long term and then you have the rising tide which you mentioned earlier and i was just wondering if there's any particular piece that you went in with the intention of invoking that sense of responsibility and how you approached creating that piece. There's one particular one in the Atlantic, which I quite enjoyed making, which was called Las Holoteros. And it was a, a group of young children from the island. And they had a tradition every summer where they would make their own boats from oil drums. And so we did a, quite a nice project where we took all these old recycled oil drums and cast them and had the children sit in them and they made their own paddles. And we produced this final installation. And for me, it kind of embodied everything that we were setting forth this generation and we were equipping them was something that was so fragile and so delicate and ill-prepared for the future. And I, I felt that really sort of captured what I was trying to get in that project. You've mentioned so much about the marine life and how important it is, obviously, for us to really connect with it and acknowledge what we're doing. So I was wondering if there was actually a piece of yours that over the years you feel it's become more elevated once the biological marine life has become a part of it, because you never really know what path or process it's going to take. Personally, I think all of them are elevated by the marine environment. They're all much more intricate and meaningful pieces when they're colonized and like i mentioned earlier the palettes of color and the textures and the variety of forms you know we do scientific studies on some of the pieces you take a meter squared frame and you count the number of species in each frame and there's, there's hundreds if not thousands in some of them it's so rich just from the sort of macrobiotic life down to the different types of algae and worms and shells. And there's a whole sort of web of life just on this one structure. So that's certainly the most meaningful part. And now that some of them have been in the water for 15, 20 years, they've really colonized. And one of the earliest projects I did in Mexico, I was fortunate to go back last year. And it was really moving just seeing this area that was sand previously it had thousands of Gorgonian fan corals. It had about 80 different types of sponge turtles schools and schools of fish and it also had this beautiful stuff called fire coral which is a very aggressive coral and i don't think it's technically a coral either but it does produce amazing forms and it because it's so aggressive it completely covers the surface of the works so you can see the sort of shadow of the person beneath the surface but the actual substrate is covered in these tiny fiery like hairs that burn you if you touch them but just provide this incredible sort of golden hue around that piece so 
Yeah, I, my, I was <laughs> clicking very quickly on my camera when I went. I haven't visited, but I've seen the amazing images and films of them. And so I'm wondering, in terms of the ways are changing oceans, and like ocean acidification or 12 million tons of plastic are dumped into oceans every year, if that affects your sculptures, I mean, does that change you know, how you have to think about their permanence? It's very difficult to quantify and it, the changes are so subtle. I have had some cases of coral bleaching where I've actually planted corals into the sculptures and they form these amazing webs of antlers and kind of fingers that come off and I'm really pleased with them. And then there'll be a sustained period of warm weather and all of the coral will bleach and die and the sculpture will just be covered in algae again. So yeah, there's definitely been disappointments. Again, this was also in Mexico. We had like an inundation of a certain type of green flat algae. And it was a project that I'd been working on for three years and we installed it. And then three months later, it just became a big ball of green algae. And I felt so demoralized. But we did a little experiment. We actually cleaned algae off around 10 sort of sculptures and left it all. And it was interesting that the part which we'd left to its own devices, actually all the fish ate the algae. And, and the current blew it away. But all the bits we cleaned, when the algae came back. So I think it was quite an important lesson early on not to interfere too much in the process. Yeah, and where a lot of people are looking to the oceans to, you know, solve our problems. Like I was so intrigued that there's anti-cancer medications being made from the coral reefs. Like, I mean, that gives us another reason, a stronger message for advocating. It can really save us. I mean, again, that's a utilitarian aspect. We have to, you know, use whatever arguments are at our fingertips. The other thing is that on land, water insecurity and water scarcity is affecting almost everyone, everyone part of the world. And it's something that a lot of people deal with and they're looking towards desalination. I know this is a little bit off topic, but what solutions from the sea have you been coming across and that inspires you and helps you advocate for protecting the, the oceans? I think for me, it's really easy to underestimate the power of the sea, the power and energy that it can provide. And there's a lot of issues that we need to solve, but you know, the major one is our fossil fuel economy. And we have to change to sustainable energy as quickly as possible. The sea has so much built-in energy that can be harnessed. And I know there's lots of new solutions being able to convert that wave energy now in, into the power grid. And there's obviously offshore wind farms, which are particularly effective because there's so much strong offshore wind. So I do think the sea obviously holds the keys to many different things, but I think energy is where it could be a complete game changer. You've spoken about wanting your children to be able to experience the things that you experience so easily in your childhood. So what are some of those things that you share with them while we still can? Oh, I mean, I think we all have this same challenge that we need to explain what's happening and we obviously need to talk about the inc incredible damage that we've done. But it's so immobilizing <laughs> and it just instills a sense of futility in people. There's a real hard balance of demonstrating the facts, but motivating people to want to change and to feel differently. And there is, you know an incredible amount of hope around the sea you know some of the places i've gone have been so incredible how they've returned how nature's reclaimed how nature will always survive in some form i, th I think there's so many positives that could be taken away but we just need to change slightly our language or change slightly how we relate to that ecosystem in order to be able to to protect it Yes, and so much of your sculpture is really about the next generation and even the metaphors of young people and how they 
carry the burden more than we who created the conditions do. Yes, certainly. I mean, I've cast a lot of children. That's probably been the most sort of concurrent theme through my work is in each area, I do try to work with local communities and also young children, because I think it's such a powerful message and really instills that sense of responsibility on what we're leaving behind. And currently you have some projects in the Caribbean and some solar sculptures. I don't know what you can share, but like what is exciting for you on the horizon? Lots of new projects in the mix. So yes, I'm working with some new materials that are carbon neutral. I'm starting to introduce my own color palettes underwater. And I have several projects now in the Caribbean, which I'm quite excited to see how they come to fruition this year. And I've also been working on energy systems. So I've always enjoyed the fact that the artworks have this dual purpose. And as the works underwater produce these artificial reefs, I've also been trying to work on some land pieces. And the world of solo is changing incredibly fast. And now there's some amazing technology that allows me to actually change the skin of the sculptures so that they produce energy and light. And so I'm working on some quite ambitious concepts for those. Oh, we'll be excited to see those. I'm wondering, you know, what have you learned from your collaboration, say, with scientists or people whose lives are traditionally quite dependent on the sea, like fishermen and those who have a kind of a long-standing relationship? What have you learned from those partnerships? I think it's just the passion and love that people feel when they talk about these places. I think many people tend to talk about the ocean as a commodity or as a resource, or we talk about stocks of fish. We don't talk about (laughs) incredibly diverse, (laughs) beautiful wildlife. And actually, when you talk to communities, I think a lot of people think about it like that. It's like we wouldn't tolerate if someone came into our environment and demolished our local forest and decimated all the wildlife, but somehow it seems more acceptable underwater. Whereas, in fact, when you talk to local communities, it's a very sacred space and it's something that is incredibly meaningful to them. Hi, everyone. My name is Tara and I'm working with the creative process as an associate podcast interviewer and producer. I have to say, Jason DeCares Taylor's work has been a reminder of how there are so many different ways to communicate and tell a story. By using casts of locals and working with local artists, he's reminded me that building a connection between both sides leaves a lasting impact. See, there's this idea of permanence that comes from Jason and his work. Whether it's working with the locals, doing his research, working with the community in general, he has this idea to bring art and people to nature. By doing so, we intertwine them and see a level of truth to what he says about how the greatest museum ever is the ocean itself. There's so much that lurks beneath the waves, so much that we have yet to discover, and knowing that there are these underwater parks and museums designed to shed light on the unknown, it makes me wonder what else could be lurking just beyond our sight. What else are we influencing without even realizing it? With 70% of Earth being covered by the ocean, it's been a well-needed reminder that we are disrupting a larger wildlife, and we've been doing it in a negative way. Jason's underwater sculptures are a beautiful example of doing the opposite, trying to connect with the ocean's wildlife and create a positive impact. Each piece starts out separate from its environment. It's only with time that they are given the opportunity to become elevated with this feel of surreal intricacy. These sculptures become more than just art. They become artificial reefs, homes, and opportunity for oceanic life. Not only that, but it's an opportunity to bring about awareness to people while grabbing their attention. After all, art has a habit of making people talk. It also makes us think. When I look at Jason's pieces, one of Chief Seattle's infamous quotes comes to mind. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to earth. 
This reminder of what we are leaving behind for the next generation only proves that we're in a desperate need of change. It's not about my world, but rather my role and what I can do to help change the tide. In fact, it's everyone's role. Because while nature does have a way of finding a way to survive, Jason's work reminds us that it doesn't need to survive on its own. Much like people, nature thrives when there is a sense of unity. Really, everything does. It's why art has thrived as long as humanity has existed. It unites us, and it's that idea of bringing us together that I hope to bring about in my own work in the future. Now, let's get back to Mia Funk and Jason DeCaris Taylor something that also runs throughout your work. I mean, I think in the decision to call these spaces underwater museums is a place of reverence, like we have to understand the awe. Definitely, definitely. And how we've conceptualized the sea for many, many years. And many people have sort of dumping things in the sea. It's a place of fear, of dangerous creatures and of myths. And there's been so many sort of negative connotations to it. And I really wanted to change that. For me, it's one of the most beautiful, spiritual and diverse places on the planet. And it's so sort of little understood. You mentioned earlier you're working with some new material and new colors. And also how your piece is to not disrupt ocean life and become toxic. But I was wondering if there was ever a possibility or a concern with that. And like now, especially with the new material and colors and what lengths you can go to and who you work with to avoid it. So, yeah, there's something that I've been working on for a long time with several different organizations that test materials. And so these colors are new, but they're all based on natural pigments. There's no chemical toxins that would go into them. And all the surfaces of the works will be pH neutral. And we've actually got some new works which actually have scientific monitoring devices in them. They have little sensors in that monitor temperature and salinity and other factors. And they can be removed and then scanned. And all that data can then be downloaded to also monitor how the works are. And that was one of the recent projects. I actually just completed a big project in Australia, uh, which just opened on World Oceans Day last week. And uh, one of the main pieces there is this piece called The Ocean Siren. And it's a young indigenous woman that's standing on the coastline. And she's actually attached to a weather station connected via a satellite link to a weather station out on the Great Barrier Reef. And that feeds data back to her. And then there's a solar array that uh, changes a series of LEDs on her skin. So she changes a red and orange color when there's prolonged spikes in temperature that could indicate coral bleaching. And then when the water's cooler, she obviously comes back down to a cooler blue or green color. And for me, that's one of the sort of areas I really wanted to explore more because it's connecting people to an environment that's seven kilometers away and making people in, in urban environments feel what's actually happening out in the wilderness. I've seen photos of that piece and it's just gorgeous. I love the idea of being able to combine science and art to really bring an awareness about it. So thank you for that. Yes, those are amazing works. It reminded me of the camouflage of abilities of some sea creatures like octopuses and abilities to just change their patterns according to what's around them and the needs or the threats around them and how great to have a visual reminder of our heating planet. But what's also lovely with your work, although it's a reminder and it's firm, it's full of hope. There's a lot of beauty there. It's not shining a light on what's negative, but just showing the opportunity opportunity for change in all of us. It reminds me of this quote that we often say is like one of our missions of the creative process. It's by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Very true, yes. 
So in closing, as you think about the future and education, the beauty of the natural world and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I mean, certainly, I just think we need to protect these areas. We have to feel for them. We have to understand them and we have to feel that connection. So I would certainly encourage as many people as possible to learn to dive and and to really be in the moment, be in the space in order to foster that empathy for our marine world. Yes, that's what your art does. So thank you, Jason DeCarries-Taylor, for your moving underwater museums and living sculptures and advocacy for our oceans that communicates the impacts of climate change in a way that speaks to all and expresses the wonders of the ocean. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and The Creative Process. Thank you for the invitation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Tara Swan with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Tara Swan. Our digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcasts and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.